This episode of Mountain View Scattered was recorded as a part of our 2018 conference entitled Everyday Justice, God's Heart in the Christian Life. The presenter during this session is John Skeepers. He is the founder of Isapambana, the Center for Biblical Justice, based out of Cape Town. We hope that you enjoy. I'm John Skeepers. I'm an English-speaking uh, Skeepers, just for, just for the record, for all of you who try and come and speak to me in Afrikaans, and I don't want to offend you, um, I can say things like, Yola Mensa, rather than, Hula Mensa, I think was, was Wade's um, brave, brave attempt. I thought he was speaking Spanish to me or something. He habla así español, eh? But anyway, <clears throat> so that's me. Um, I am the founder of Ispambana Center for Biblical Justice. Um, it's not just me involved. There are a number of other voices. We really, it, it, it's, it can't just be about me. It's got to be a diverse group of voices talking and reflecting scripturally, uh, reflecting on the context of South Africa. But I, for better or for worse, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the guy heading it up. I'm, I'm the guy who, who's kind of, I, I don't even know what my title is. People say, oh, are, you the, are you the president? Are you the director? I'm like, well, I'm not really directing anybody, so I don't know. So I just go with founder, okay. Um, I am from Cape Town. I'm born and bred in Cape Town. Uh, grew up uh, most of my life, well, I spent most of my life there. Uh, proud Copetonian. I'm married 15 years to my wife, Joanne. I have two boys. I am a deacon at Hope City Presbyterian Church. And I am, as I mentioned last time, I'm going to mention again, I am a rampant, crazy Liverpool fan. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you know where you'll find me on Saturday night. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want me to say? Oh, there's another thing I want to say, but I just realized that it, a few people have asked me, um, and uh, I thought it's probably worth saying, Isipamana, what does it mean? Um, so Isipamana is a Zulu word for cross. So both literally the cross of Christ, but it also has a secondary meaning, which is kind of what really attracted me to the term, as a friend of mine was explaining to me, it has a secondary meaning of crossing paths. So as you cross paths with one another, and I thought that's exactly what happens, isn't it? As, as, we, as we see the beauty and the majesty of the gospel in the cross, then we, we, we actually learn to cross paths with one another in a deeper and richer way. Jesus enables us to come into a relationship with people, to hear and to listen and to serve and love people who are radically different from us. But as we do that as well, I think we also understand the deeper and richer uh, and fuller meaning and understanding and implications of the cross. So that, that, that's really what the word means. That's kind of how we've interpreted and that's why we've chosen that word. Okay. Wait, anything else I need to mention? No? That's good. Okay. Well, um, perhaps you can permit me to pray and then we'll look at the subject of cross-centered justice. Father God, we... We come here and we, we want to hear from you. We want to understand your word better, even as we take a, a somewhat rational, even as we, we're looking at these concepts. Lord, would you, we trust that your, your spirit is here with us. You've promised he'll be with us. And so we pray, would you come? Would you encourage our hearts? Would you challenge us? Would you stir us? Lord, we want to, we want to understand your word better. We want to understand you better. We want to know what it is to be your faithful people in this place, in this time better, Lord. And so, Father, we pray, would you, would you do that work in us? We, we don't come as those who presume. We don't come demanding. We come as, 
humbly and we, as, as sons and daughters and we come to our Father and we, we ask for bread, Lord, and you promised you won't give us a stone. And so, Father, we pray, feed us tonight. Feed us tonight. Amen. Nigerian novelist Chimamande Ngorti Adichie, in a TED Talk from October 2009, she talks about the danger of a single story. And this is what she says. She says, how to create a single story? Show a people as one thing, only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. She carries on. She says, start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British, and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with the failure of the African state and not with the colonial creation of the African state, and you have an entirely different story. The single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete, and they make one story become the only story. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I highly recommend you go and listen to that story, The Danger of a Single Story, by Chimamande Ngorti Ndichi. Uh, it's probably about... I think less than 20 minutes even a talk, but very profound. I'm not going to focus too much on, on what she actually said, but I want to pick up that idea of a single story. Because I think we have developed single story thinking when it comes to the story of God. We have created an unnatural divide between social justice, between social action and gospel proclamation. And we've had running debates in our church for over a hundred years, perhaps even more, as to which is more important, social justice, caring for the poor, or gospel proclamation. And we have defined ourselves, and we have defined our churches, and who we associate with, depending on where we land on these issues. And early on in your association with the church, you'd better decide on which side of the fence you fall, or you might well get eaten alive. That's certainly been my experience. I'm, I, I'm going to admit that I think that there's been something of a lessening of these dichotomies in recent years. And to, today, perhaps the lines are a little less sharply drawn. But by and large, it's my suggestion, I think that the, the fundamental thinking that has gotten us into this impasse remains. And, and what I want to suggest today is that the Bible is not a single-dimension story. Um, and that in doing so, we have robbed it of some of its beauty and its majesty by making it a single-dimension story. The biblical story is a bigger, richer, fuller, and altogether more beautiful story than either side can adequately portray. And I'm convinced that evangelism, proclamation, mercy, and justice are all integral to the Bible story all integral to our proper understanding of the gospel. And we need to break out of single-story, single-dimension mindsets and embrace instead a multifaceted, whole-of-life story of restoration, grace, and mercy with a cross of Jesus planted firmly at the center of the story. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to take that very simple lens that has been used very often in... Um, in looking at the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I want to take each one of those, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And what I want to do is I want to trace the essential storyline of the Bible. 
demonstrating how, as we do that, how both of these themes of social action, social justice, and proclamation, and evangelism are occurring throughout the story. And how they are not just present, but they are in fact integral to the biblical storyline itself. And more significantly, how both of these themes find their climax and their fulfillment at the cross of Christ. Okay? So, so it's a big task, I'm going to admit it. It's a big task. We're going, to, we're, going to try, we're going to be doing a flyover, a bird's eye view. We're going to be covering a lot of ground. So I'm going to make an, so in one sense, I'm going to make an apology up front. I'm going to say we're probably going to, this is probably going to raise all sorts of questions. We're not going to, there's going to be all sorts of things we can't deal with. But we're going to try and just take a, a flyover and say, is this dichotomy that we've created in our churches between social action and between evangelism, is it, is it something we see in the Bible? Between proclamation and social justice, do we see that in the Bible? Is it warranted or is it... Or do we actually need to go back to scriptures and say, this single dimension story is actually unbiblical. It's not helpful. We've emphasized one to the exclusion of, of the other, but the Bible doesn't do that. So, uh, I want to start with creation. We see... Sorry, that's, this leave is bothering me. So, so, when we come to scripture, we see creation. And the creation story found in Genesis 1 and 2, what do we see? We see God speaking. We see God's word is present. We see there's a proclamation there. God speaks. He speaks things into being. He, he, and as he speaks, he lavishes abundance on the world. Look, he creates all, massive diversity of plants, of animals, of birds. And he, and he says to man and woman, you can eat from any tree in the garden. He, he, his word rules the garden. He says, he says when morning and evening comes, he, say, he, defines, uh, where the, the, he defines the order and the structure of creation. He defines what you can and cannot do. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you cannot eat from the tree in the middle. God's word is creating and sustaining and ordering creation. It's integral to the creation purposes. But here's the thing. It is a working word. God's word is a working word. It is not a word that is, to be, is just said on its own. It's not a word that stands on its own. It is a word that is meant to accomplish a purpose. So let me give you an example. I have two boys, as I said, and they share a room. And um, so they play in their room. And sometimes that room becomes a beautiful, creative mess, really. And at the end of the day, I come in and I will say, boys, it's time to clean the room. I have spoken my word, if you want to use my word. I've declared, I've said that this room needs to be clean. Now, if they're feeling particularly brave, and perhaps if I've had a particularly good day or enough coffee or something, we can choose to exegete that word. We can choose to evaluate that word. And they can say, well, Dad, when you say clean, the room, can we define the perimeters here? Um, do you include the cupboards here? Like, do we need to tidy up the cupboards um, and, and, and is the bed effectively part of the room? Because it's double bunks, it's actually, the top bunk is up. Can we just chuck this stuff up on the bunk? I mean, we, we can exegete, we can look at it and say, and clean, define this word clean. Are we talking about tidying up the things? Are we talking about mopping the floors? Uh, you know, what is entailed? And we, and we could go on and on, and we could exegete this. Now I'm being a bit ridiculous here, yeah, I realize that. Um, but at the end of the day, what do I want to see? I want to see that my word accomplishes something. So I want to see that the room is clean. And we can debate and we can argue about the nuances and the, of the words and we can exegete 
the text, if you want to use your good biblical words. But at the end of the day, God's word is, is there, and we, we need to do that work. But it's there to see that something happens, that, that God's word works. And we see that in creation. It is a working word. It is spoken to accomplish something. And what are the words that it's meant to accomplish? You see, when God's words, when God speaks, is in order to achieve a specific end. And we must be careful we do not confuse the method, the word that is, with the goal. The word is there to accomplish an end. Well, what does that word accomplish? What do we see God's word doing? What do we see it accomplishing? Order. God's word creates a world of order, of beauty, of justice. There's equality. Of abundance. Do you know that? Do you notice that? You can eat from any tree in the garden. There is enough food for everyone. Everyone has enough food. There's no hunger. One of the greatest injustices in our world today. It's not present at creation. It's a world of just. It's a world of plenty. No one is going hungry. It's a world of dignity. Do you see that there's work in the garden? And we're not talking about the dehumanizing, mind-numbing work that so many uh, laborers and so many people have to endure in factories and work that is actually just beating them down. That mind. It's good, dignifying, soul-uplifting work as they join God as co-creators in His presence. And there's not that, that, that numbing, um, dignity-robbing situation of unemployment. It's not there. It's present. There's good work for everyone, and there's good, honest work. These are justice issues. These are justice issues. God is creating a world that is just and is good and works the way it ought to. There is harmony with the world, with the environments. In a world where we've seen so much injustice around creation, around creation care, around pollution, around our, our misuse of, of, of the environment. No. There is harmony in creation. There is care for the environment. There is there's creativity. There's culture making. We're invited into this, this task of creating culture, of saying, God, God doesn't name the animals. He says, you name the animals. You come and be part of that. And that's, that's actually an act of inclusion. You notice that? There is no marginalization. There is no exclusion at creation. And now we live in a world which is profoundly affected by marginalization and exclusion and the powerlessness that comes with that. And God says, in my good world, my word speaks good words to create a world where there's inclusion. Where I share, where God, in a sense, shares his power with us and says, you rule this world under me. We don't know the powerlessness that exclusion and marginalization brings. God's world is creating a good, beautiful, perfect world. And when God says something is good, which he says, I think, six or seven times within those chapters, he is saying it fulfills its purpose. The world works the way it ought to. There is harmony. Everyone is sufficient to meet their basic needs. Sometimes we have to look at this. We don't look at this passage and we don't see justice here. We don't see justice issues here. But when we, when we put it next to the injustices of our world, we look and we say, this is a profoundly just world. This is a profoundly just creation. Because none of these issues that we struggle with are present in God's creation. So God's word is a working word to accomplish what? To what end? To create a world of justice, of beauty, of order, of sufficiency. Okay, John, maybe you're following me. You say, I can go with that. 
I can see that there's justice in creation. I can see that these two go together, that God's word speaks words that create just, societies of justice and mercy. Right, okay, I can buy that. But what about the fall? Perhaps the fall fundamentally changed how God's word and justice relate to one another. Perhaps the dichotomy, uh, this break, ought not to have been there uh, in a perfect creation, but perhaps, like so much else, it is the result of, a fall, of the fall. Well, I think that's a fair comment. So we move on to Genesis chapter 3, and we look at the fall. And we say, well, what is the fall? What happens there? Well, is God's word there? Yes. The fall, the rebellion against God, is essentially a love, or if you will, a trust of the wrong voice. God's word is there speaking, but for the first time, another voice comes in. And the question is, whose voice are you going to trust? Whose voice are you going to listen to? So God comes in. He creates this beautiful, just, abundant, fruitful, inclusive, uh, just world. And he says, you can eat from any tree in the garden. And the serpent, Satan, comes in and he says, hmm, did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden? No, no, no. He just said we mustn't eat from this one in the middle. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and serpent says, ah, you see, you can't trust God. He's, he's keeping the best back from you, isn't he? Hey, he's giving you all these trees, but this is the best one. This one, when you eat from this tree, you will be able to determine for yourself what is good and evil. You will become like gods yourself. God is... God is holding back this one because it's the best one and he wants to keep it for himself. You see, he's a tyrant. You can't trust him. We know tyrants like that in our world. We know they give you all the stuff, but they keep the best for themselves. God is just like them. You can't trust him. You can't. He's keeping the best back. And man and woman have a choice to make. Will they trust this God who's created this beautiful, abundant, just, righteous, inclusive, loving world? Or they trust the voice of the serpent who says God is a tyrant, who, God, who says God is not a good God. And isn't that the choice each of us has to make every day? Isn't that a choice we have to make every time saying, can I really trust God? Is God truly good? And just like we do, Adam and Eve make the choice to trust the serpent. And they say, yeah, we can't trust God. He is holding back his best from us. He is a tyrant. And God's word comes into that situation. God's word comes in as this alternative voice comes in, this alternative, alternative narrative and, and truth of how we should understand creation comes in. God speaks again, but he speaks again a more powerful word and a word of judgment, a word of curse, a word of judgment that restores the order. I don't know if you noticed but if you, well, we haven't read it, but if you go read the story, you'll see that the way the fall happens is the snake speaks to the woman who speaks to the man. And when God speaks judgment, he speaks man, woman, snake. He, he restores that order. He says that's, he, he reverses that creation cycle. He says, my word will restore order. My word will, will continue. But there is curse and there's brokenness. And into that, he also speaks a word of hope. But what does that word of judgment achieve? What happens with that word of judgment? Is it simply that, yes, what happens is it's a spiritual thing? Is it simply you guys disobeyed God? 
So everything in the world is going to stay the way it is, but your relationship with God is going to be broken. There's a spiritual break, and that's all that's wrong. But everything else stays the same. No, we, I don't even need to tell you this. You know this from your own experience. But in, but in the story of Genesis 3, we see that everything is broken and cursed. There is not a single area of our lives, of our world, of our communities that are not touched by the curse of sin. Sin affects not only the soul or the destiny of man, sin affects everything. You see, the curse is not only spiritual, but it's holistic. We see, whereas our labor was once good and, and provided dignity and provided fulfillment and provided satisfaction, now the ground is fighting against man. You will, earn, you will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. Thorns and thistles will fight against you. This harmony with creation is broken, is destroyed. It's, or it's marred, it's cursed. And, and what was once good in childbearing is now will be done with pain. And the relationship with man and woman that was meant to be this beautiful working together, now you'll be fighting over who's, who's, on, who, who, who's got the power, who's dominating. Your, your desire will be for your man, but for, to rule over the man, but his, his desire will be to rule over you. And, and there'll be this, this kind of this, this power dynamic going on. This beautiful relationship is tainted by sin. Everything is affected and broken by sin. And you know what? As that story of sin carries on throughout history, we see that not only our personal relationships broken, but our communal relationships are broken. We see that in Scripture. And as we grow as humans and we start to build structures of economics and politics um, and social structures and religious structures, sinful, broken people build sinful, broken structures, don't we? So we multiply and we comply and we, we um, compound and we institutionalize our sin into structures that actually we use to oppress and harm others. But here's something else that I find interesting in that passage. You see, the very first act of disobedience itself was also the very first act of injustice. Man and woman, they reach out and they take what is not theirs to take. Fueled by greed and a, a desire and a grasping for power, they reach out and take what is not theirs to take. That is an act of injustice. That is the story of injustice throughout history. It's a story of injustice in our country. It's a story of the history of this country. A reaching out and taking what is not theirs to take. We know the story. It can hardly be insignificant, I think, that when we look at the story, that it was an act of injustice related to food. Given, when you consider our present inequalities around food and provision and land, it can hardly be insignificant how central that is. And lest we forget, the first act of injustice was an act of injustice against God himself. You see, if you're, if you're a victim of injustice, if you know the pain of injustice, our God is not one who doesn't know what that feels like. He knows he, and he feels the pain of injustice. He was the one against the first act of injustice was perpetrated against. He knows what it's like for greed and power and a, and a desire to have what is not yours how that affects you, how it affects your world, how it affects the people you love. God knows. 
So God speaks a word of judgment. He speaks a word of judgment against our individual act of sin, this personal spiritual decision not to worship God that has been embodied and enacted through specific acts, act and acts of injustice. You see, the fall is not only a spiritual thing. The fall has affected all of life. It's holistic. There's not a single area of life that's not touched by the sin and injustice. So I want to argue that I think creation doesn't support this dichotomy between, if you want, God's word and social justice. It doesn't support it between evangelism and social action. I think the fall doesn't either. When we look at it, it's holistic fall. Every single area of life is affected and is broken by our spiritual act of rebellion against God. And we've compounded that by creating unjust structures. So perhaps, perhaps, yes, okay, so perhaps you're going to say, so perhaps you're following with me and say, okay, I can follow with you so far, John. Yes, creation was holistic. Then we had this holistic fall that affected every area of life, and that dichotomy wasn't present. So perhaps what we need at this point, right, so perhaps we're going to say that this all-of-life thing failed. What we really need now is we need a spiritual solution, even to this holistic mess. So we look at, the, the, we look at redemption. Um, so we look at this act of redemption. We come <clears throat> to, and I, I want to fast forward, because we really can't touch on everything. Um, Wade told me to take as much time as I like, but I think you're going to take offense to that. So um, <laughs> I, I, I want to honor our time as well. So I want to fast forward. I want to skip a lot of things. I want to come to the Exodus. I want to come to the Exodus, that event where God's people were enslaved in Egypt. Um, they cried out to God. They said, rescue us from the, the, this terrible vis- uh, position. Remember your promises t- to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God acts. God redeems them through miracles and wonder, and he brings them out of the Exodus. He brings them out of Egypt. Uh, He takes them through the desert. He defeats the false god that is Pharaoh. He defeats Pharaoh and put himself up as God. He takes them into the desert, and he brings them into a land of their own. That's the act of Exodus. That is, the Exodus is, is the story of the people of Israel, but it's actually throughout the Old Testament and into the New. This Exodus event, this great rescue, this liberation from slavery, this act of salvation of his people becomes the paradigm, becomes the example, becomes the, um, for rescue and redemption and rescue and salvation throughout Scripture. And we don't have time to look at all the passages, but I, I mean, you can come talk to me afterwards or we can, uh, or I encourage you to just go and, Go and search and read through it. Time and time again, when the Old Testament and the New Testament wants to talk about what does salvation look like? What, is, what does it mean for God to rescue His people? They go back to this Exodus event. And they say, that is what liberation looks like. That is what salvation looks like. That's what God's rescue looks like. And that, that paradigm comes through time and time and time again. So, what, so I think it's worth us saying, let's look at that event. If that, if that event is the paradigm that even the later rest, the, the, even the salvation under Jesus is that they use that example, they use that paradigm in saying Jesus fulfills the great Exodus, and we get there, so what is the Exodus about? What is, what is that event about? So the Exodus of redemption is a holistic redemption. And as we look at the, the, the story of the Exodus, it actually portrays at least four dimensions of bondage of slavery that the Israelites experienced in Egypt. 
And then goes on to say, show how God redeemed his people in, from every one of them in every way. So, um, uh, I'm indebted to a scholar by the name of Chris Wright for this. And so I'm going um, to quite liberally uh, use his ideas on this. So if, if you like it, it's not me. Um, if you don't like it, it's not me. Um, <laughs> so, so this is what he says. He says, when you, look at, when you look at what God did in the Exodus, there was a political redemption. There was a political liberation. Uh, so think about this. The Israelites were an immigrant ethnic minority in a large imperial state. They arrived originally as famine refugees, but a change of government policy in a later generation meant that their economic asylum turned, it, turned into a prison house of political hatred, unfounded fears, exploitation, and discrimination. That echoes the story, by the way, of so many ethnic minorities in, in our world today suffering suspicion and systematic oppression of host states. But in the Exodus, what happens is God ends. He ends this political enslavement, enslavement and instead establishes the Israelites as a free people in order to liberate them and put them into their own land. God confronted the state power of an empire. There is a the Exodus has a profoundly political dimension of salvation of liberation, of redemption. But it also has an economic dimension. So an exploited slave labor, which is essentially what they were, on a land not their own, for the benefit of the host nation, they cry out to God. And it's this very outcry, as they are, as they are subjected to increasing hardship in their work and increasing levels of slavery, they cry out to God, the Israelites cry out to God, and it was this outcry that precipitated the compassionate intervention of God as their Redeemer. And the goal of the Exodus, the goal of this Exodus of the salvation, was to give the Israelites a land of their own. With an economic system, as we read through the laws of the Old Testament in Israel, with an economic system that was intended to outlaw such oppression within Israel itself. You see, so it was not just rescuing them from slavery, but it was bringing them into a land where they would have a different way of being, a different economic system, a different way of living. There was a social dimension to this. There was a social redemption. So you have an attempted subversion from within the culture of Israel. You have the midwives. I don't know if you remember the story that Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, who was getting worried about the growth of, of the Israelites, and he says, you know what? If they get too many, their men are going to form an army and they're going to rebel against us. So what we're going to do is if a, every time a baby boy is born, we'll get the midwives to kill them. Now, that's a particularly, that's a particularly sick kind of way to do things, isn't it? He's not even saying we will kill the babies. He's saying we will get the midwives to come and kill the children of their own people. We will, we, will, we will rot the society from within. We will destroy the social fabric of these people. We will turn them against one another. It's a vicious invasion of normal family life and the denial of human rights. But God's redemption led to the inauguration of a society 
in which limitation on government power, respect for human life, and basic rights and passion for social justice were built into the founding documents. I mean, I, I don't know if you've, how much of the Old Testament law you've read, but and there's a beautiful example, for instance, of, I don't know if you've seen, heard about this law of gleaning, right? So, so what happens in the law of gleaning? It says, if you own a field and you're harvesting your field, do not harvest right to the edge of your field, but leave the edges around your field so that those who don't have access to land, those who are poor, those who are hungry, can come and harvest the edges of your land. Because God is saying the bottom line in my kingdom is no longer the bottom line. Exclusion is no longer to happen in my kingdom. We all provide a means. And you notice that they didn't say, they didn't say harvest all the, the, the grain or the corn. I'm not a farmer, so um, <laughs> I'm probably using bad analogy. Do whatever, grind it, and then give it to the poor. It says, no, let them come and do some of that dignifying work and labor that was lost in order to give them, give them, don't just give them food, give them dignity. Give them inclusion. And there's a number of laws like that. It says when you're going through your field, if you drop one of your, your sheaths and it falls down, don't go back and pick it up. Leave it. Leave it for the poor to come fetch. Leave it for those who don't have land. It's an inclusive thing. And the law of Jubilee says that if you, if you, get, so, if you get in such a hard situation that you have to sell off your land or, your, or one of your uh, descendants or family members acts unwisely and loses the land or loses the property. Do you know what? Every 50 years, the land is supposed to revert to the original ownership within Israel. What's it say? It's saying that cycle, that cycle of poverty and dependence and marginalization is not to continue forever. Whether you've been a victim of oppression of economic circumstances, whether you made your own foolish mistakes and put yourselves outside the economic cycle of Israel, that cycle is not to continue forever. Now, that, now, those are the laws. God says, I'm rescuing you from this situation, from this, this, this economic, social um, uh, just exclusion. I'm bringing you to a land where we, get, where we live completely differently, where my people, what it means to me, my people, we live in a totally different way. There is, an, it is a social liberation. And finally, there is a spiritual there is a spiritual salvation. There's a spiritual liberation. When God redeemed Israel, it was not just out of all these, these, these other dimensions of bondage, but also, and this I think is the key, and this is the heart of the other dimensions, into a, into a covenant relationship with himself. And because they were in a covenant relationship with himself, it flowed over into to the economic, the political, and the social dimensions in ways that completely changed the ways they were used to operating in the world. So the Exodus was not simply a movement from slavery to freedom, but from slavery to covenants. And that's, that's a, we, we need to hold on there. So Christopher Wright says this, In the Exodus, God responded to all the dimensions of Israel's need. God's momentous act of redemption did not merely rescue Israel from political, economic, and social oppression and then leave them to their own devices to worship whom they pleased. Nor did God merely offer them spiritual comfort of hope for some brighter future in a home beyond the sky, while leaving the historical condition unchanged. No, the exodus affected real change in the people's real historical situation, and at the same time called them into a real new relationship with the living God. This was God's total response to Israel's total need. 
Friends, this is the pattern and the paradigm of salvation that goes throughout the Old Testament. This is the pattern, the paradigm, the picture that the New Testament authors pick up to describe what's happening there. Do you see that 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 dichotomy that we have so often, that we have between justice and, and God's word, between covenant and social justice, is not there. Because they are God's people, because they've come into God's covenant, the way they react, the way they live in the world, economically, socially, political, is radically changed. Because of this, so there is a holistic redemption. God's people are to be a picture to the world of what He is like. If you want to know what God is like, go look at His people. See how they live. Well, the story carries on. The story of Israel, anyway. Despite God's great mercy towards them, despite this great rescue, politically, socially, economically, spiritually, besides bringing them into this land with good, perfect laws that are just, just a mirror and a, and, a, and, a, and a shadow harking back to what was lost in creation, God's saying, I'm busy restoring this. You, you're going to get a taste of this. You're going to give a picture of what that was like. Despite all that, despite the experiences of people of great liberation, Israel failed to walk in the ways of the Lord. They failed to follow the pattern of life in the kingdom. They abandoned the God who had liberated them. They oppressed the foreigner, took advantage of the vulnerable, and exploited the poor. They grew arrogant and proud, enriched off the back of exploitative business and social practices. They became racial supremacists, believing they were superior to all other people, and that was the reason for God's favor of them. Listen to the words from Amos in chapter 5. It says, You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. wine, For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. I hate, he carries on, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-flowing stream. God's word and social justice go together. God is indicting his people for not worshiping me, but also for oppressing the poor. And in fact, as we read the Old Testament time and time again, the indictment of the Old Testament prophets against God's people was both that they had turned away from God to worship idols and that they had not upheld social justice. It's, it, go read scriptures, you'll see it's there. We have made it a single dimension story, but God, the Bible's not making that distinction. And so God takes the land away from them. He allowed them to be defeated, the Israelites, and, the, and his people were taken into exile by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And yet, in the midst of the warnings of judgment and indictment of the idolatry and injustice, a new note begins from the prophets. A note that one day, one day a new king will come and his reign will not only turn the hearts of people away from idolatry and false worship, but also be a reign of justice, of hope, and of mercy. Listen to the words of Isaiah 9. Verse 6 and 7, words that we often say at Christmas. 
And we kind of give them a spiritual tone. But listen to how profoundly politically, economically, socially they are. It says this, for, and this is the promise of the coming king, words which we know. And it says, for, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Friends, these are, these are structural words. These are words that talk to structural injustice. Not just personal and social, but saying there are unjust structures and this king will come and rule with justice and righteousness over and he will renew the structures of this world. It's not saying that we had this beautiful, just, physical kingdom that God set up for us, but we messed it all up. Uh, we got it wrong. We, we had, sorry, goes, no, sorry. We had the system that was set up to make us a just and a beautiful society and a light to the nations, but we messed it up. So what we really need now, it's not saying this, it's not saying so what we really need now is a spiritual rescuer. We need a spiritual solution. No. We actually need a king who will come and embody all that was promised, all that we were supposed to be, which as we've seen is, is holistic and entails all of life, entails justice and mercy and care for the poor and inclusion, all of that, saying that king will come and he will embody all of that and he will lead us into all of that. So as we follow the storyline in the Bible, we come to kind of our third act of redemption. We have the Exodus, we have the story of Israel and the prophets, we come to our third act of redemption in Jesus. We follow the story around the Bible, and finally we encounter the arrival of this great king. And the arrival is spoken in clearly in Exodus language. Biblical scholars far brighter than me will tell you that when you look at the language that's used about Jesus' coming, when you look at the words that Jesus used, the imagery invokes, the passages he quotes, he quotes Exodus language. And he uses that to announce his arrival as the promised king. In Luke chapter 4, which is probably the clearest declaration we have in all of Scripture and the closest we have to Jesus' description of, um, of a mission statement, this is what he says. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, the pattern of salvation is not suddenly spiritual, whereas before it was holistic. Jesus explicitly and deliberately uses the same language, that Exodus language, that holistic language that we saw earlier. He uses that. And he, and he doesn't dissuade those who would talk about his kingdom using that same language. The Exodus pattern is the biblical pattern of salvation, and it is unambiguously holistic. You see, if Jesus didn't mean all that the Exodus entailed, if he wasn't talking about political, social, economic changes and liberation and salvation and those kind of changes, if he didn't mean that, and he came along in this society, which we know from um, sort of the, what would be like... First century Palestine, well, no, well, 20th, 30s, 
30 AD in Palestine. We know it was a society that they were longing for the king. They were, they were, they were saying it is, there were prophecies that they had interpreted that the Messiah was coming soon. There was political ferment around this. We know that a number of, of pseudo-messiahs had, had risen up claiming to be the Messiah to lead people into the land. And the Romans had defeated them. They had been crucified. They had been, um, and their followers had been dispersed. We know this was going on. We know this was ferment. And Jesus comes into this, this situation where people, using this language that talks of this exodus renewal, talking of this holistic, this all of life, this justice and mercy renewal, he comes into the situation that's, that's alive with this kind of ferment, like talking about land is today. It's something that stirs people up. That's what is happening around the arrival of the king. People were talking about, people were excited about it. And Jesus comes in and he, he uses that exact language. And you know what he says after he, quotes, after he reads that quote from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4? He sits down and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If Jesus was meaning that to be only and exclusively, in some kind of spiritual sense, and only and exclusively restoring your relationship with God, and, and not talking about all those other dimensions of salvation, I'm going to say this, and I think it makes him the worst communicator in the history of communication. Into a subject where, into a context where people would understand nothing less than a king who's coming to restore all things, to renew and make right all injustice, including injustice against God. He's coming to do that. Jesus stands up and he says, let me quote these passages, let me use this language, and let me tell you that today, I'm the one you've been waiting for. If he meant that in any other sense except the holistic sense, he would, he would be a terrible communicator. Now, I don't believe that of Jesus. I think he's saying... He's saying that the one you've been waiting for is here. The one who will bring all these, who will make all things right is here and it's me. But there's one significant difference in the pattern of liberation. You see, this king who had come to liberate his people from the system of violence, oppression, and injustice becomes himself a victim of the system. It is his acceptance and mercy towards the marginalized, the outcast, and the unclean that invoke the rage of the powerful religious leaders. He is betrayed for material gain. He is the victim of a corrupt court system. He is clearly innocent, but the Roman ruler, for fear of instability and political expediency, friends, this is justice language, by the way, convicts him. He's caught in the middle of the power plays of the rich and the powerful, and he is killed outside the city with the thieves and the murderers in a place of shame and dishonor. What kind of a king is this? Was he just another passionate young social reformer caught on the horns of the very power he sought to challenge? Was he just another reminder to the weak and the forgotten that change is futile? That this world will always be won by the rich and the powerful? On the surface, it does seem that way. And yet there can be no doubt that Jesus was not a helpless victim. He knew what was coming. He submitted himself to it. In one place, he even says, No one takes my life from me, but that I willingly lay it down. Jesus is clear. The cross was not a mistake. In fact, it will be the scene of his most decisive victory over the oppression and injustice that so plagues our world. So why the cross? Why the cross? Well, here, because the system alone cannot redeem people. 
The Exodus experience proved that. Even if people can have the most profound experience of liberation and mercy that we see in the Exodus, we still tend towards injustice and pride. Even if God himself can give, as he did for Israel, a most just and fair legal and social system that provides not only fair work and economics, but opportunities for redemption and provision for the weakest and the most vulnerable, a system that that protects not the rich and the powerful, but the foreigner, the outcast and the widow, even then, even then, we tend towards self-enrichment, self-preservation, prejudice and greed. Friends, we need something more than just fixing the system. See, as much as we want to stick it to the man, the man is not only out there. The man is in here. It's not only a broken system that exploits, victimizes, neglects, or ignores the foreign and their marginalized. It is not only a broken system that creates bitterness, prejudice, greed, and hatred. No, that line runs right through our hearts, friends. Jesus died not only because the system was broken, and it is, friends, it is, but because we are broken. Not only because the system stands condemned, because we stand condemned. You see, all those prophecies about the coming of the kingdom of God to bring justice and peace and righteousness to his world, where God will rescue his people and he... and he, will cond- and he will judge his enemies. The problem is all of us think we're on this side. God is coming to restore and bring about a beautiful, wonderful kingdom of justice and mercy and beauty and creation. But the problem is we're on this side. We- that kingdom is not good news for us. Because you and I are perpetrators of oppression and injustice in every way. God is coming to, redor- to redeem and restore the system. The kingdom of God is coming and it's beautiful and wonderful, but it's not for you and it's not for me. We're excluded. The kingdom is bad news to us, friends. It is not enough to only fix the systems and fix the systems we must. We must also fix the people. We ourselves must be fixed. There is a story, I don't, I, I don't know if it's true, it might be one of these preacher stories that go around, but it's a great story anyway. I've told of the, um, the famous thinker and Catholic theologian uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, the time, and it says the Times of London once, they ran a, a kind of a, they, they invited contributions to write letters to the editor. And they said, uh, please write your submission saying what do you think is wrong with the world today? So Chesterton was quite a witty uh, of a very, very insightful person. And he, he apparently wrote this letter back and said, Dear Sir, I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And there's a truth in that, isn't it? What is wrong with the world? Yeah, there's a lot wrong in the system out there. But I'm the one who upholds the system. I'm the one who benefits from the system. I'm, the system doesn't come around for nothing. There is a system that must be fixed, but I need to be fixed. I cannot fix the system when I am a perpetrator of the injustices and the greed and the pride that the system is built upon. The problem's not out there only, and it is, but it's in here. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is the comprehensive Exodus event, and it's pictured in that very language in the Bible. It is through the death of Jesus that victory and liberation is brought to all creation. He took all the brokenness, the injustice, the sin, and the hatred upon himself, and all the wrath of God for all our complicity and apathy and willful injustice and hatred was poured out on our great king and liberator. 
Jesus is the Redeemer who will do whatever it takes to rescue His people. And the cross is the supreme moment of redemption. As the supreme moment of redemption was God's victory over all that oppresses Him, over all that oppresses, oppresses, ah, sorry, let me try that again. All that opposes Him and enslaves His creation. Christopher Wright says, The cross is not that which replaced the Exodus as if all the socio-political and economic aspects of the Exodus simply drop away, leaving only a spiritual significance. It is the fulfillment of the Exodus, including the total redemptive accomplishment and the final liberation from all that enslaves and oppresses humanity and creation. Here is God's answer to every dimension of sin and evil in the cosmos and all their destructive effects. But you know what? The story doesn't stay on the cross, friends. Jesus comes to redeem and restore all that was broken, all that was lost. And he starts with us. But here's the, here's the good news. Here's the exciting part. After three days, Jesus demonstrated in unequivocal fashion that his victory over injustice and sin on the cross was a full and final victory when he stood up from the dead and he walked out of the grave. And the greatest of all oppressors, death itself, was defeated. And out from the empty tomb flowed peace and justice and mercy and forgiveness and hope. And our great king and liberator invites us now to be part of this movement. You see, this, this beautiful kingdom of, restore, of restoration and redemption that is coming, that, we, that is not good news to us, that we were excluded from, this is, the, this is the great message of the cross. You who don't deserve to be part of the kingdom get to be part of God's kingdom. You get to be part of this beautiful movement of justice and mercy and redemption and restoration in this world uh, and in the world to, go, to come. To be a we are invited to be a people of liberation, of justice, of hope and of mercy in this world. We need to tell people about Jesus and we need to act in ways that says we belong to that kingdom. We have a different way of doing politics. We have a different way of doing economics. We have a different way of living socially. Not because we're, we're fantastic, not because we're special, no, but because we who didn't deserve to be part of this kingdom through the death and resurrection of Jesus are invited into this kingdom. It's not just about fixing the system because as we have seen, the system runs through us. But when we follow Jesus, we ourselves are liberated from our sin and hatred and prejudice and we are set free to be people of hope and mercy and of justice in this world. So friends, I... I'm actually going to stop at this point because I think we've gone quite far. But I want to say that the gospel is undoubtedly a word. I think to speak of the gospel as any other than a message is probably unhelpful. But it is a working word. In fact, it is the working word. It is the word about the great act of restoration that both restores us individually with God and begins the work of restoration of all things. Now in part, yes, we're not, going to see, we're not going to see heaven on earth now in part, but one day in glorious fullness, God is going to redeem us and restore us and renew all things. I, I, I know I said I was going to talk about restoration, but I want to stop there because I think I've been talking for a while. But I want to say that the great news of the gospel is that kingdom of restoration, that one day kingdom has now broken into this world in the life of the church. And we live in radically different ways, spiritually, economically, politically, socially, Every aspect of our life is changed because Jesus is king. And he's the king who laid down his life to save and redeem you and me who did not deserve to be part of his kingdom. And friends, that is good news to you. That's good news to a world that is lost and dying.
Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.